I cannot tell you how perfect I think this is, at least in our community, for the questions that we've been asking and to have somebody who's been spending their entire lives studying and writing um, prolifically and prophetically about American religion, its shifts, its changes, its trends, and where are we going and where are we headed and all that stuff. And uh, she happened to be in town. Here's where Twitter comes in. Danielle follows her on Twitter. We emailed her on Thursday, on Thursday, and she said yes to be able to come. So we're super excited about that. If you're interested in any of the books, of course, we'd encourage you to pick those up, and especially Grounded, uh, we'd encourage you to get that because I think this will really help um, shape and mold and frame uh, a little bit of the journey that we've all been on. And uh, I also say that this is very serendipitous and timely because I was uh, talking with Diana earlier. Spark is right in that place. We've been here four years, and now we're asking the question, now that we have deconstructed a lot of things, what are we doing now into the future? And so this comes at a very, very uh, wonderful and powerful time. So please welcome, give a big spark welcome to Dr. Diana Butler-Bath. Thank you. Well, the reason I'm here in town is that there is an older uh, Presbyterian congregation in Portola Valley, and uh, they're called Valley Presbyterian Church, and they are in a pastoral transition. Their minister of 27 years has left, and instead of just hiring a new minister like that, they decided to take 18 months to two years and be in a spiritual space and try to hear the voice of God afresh and figure out what their direction is for the future. Um, interestingly enough, they have invited a lot of different authors and musicians and artists to come in and spend time with them as they're in this, this space. And so they are calling each one of these guests spiritual catalysts. And so my job over the next two weeks is to be a Valley Presbyterian Church as a spiritual catalyst. And then I get called by Spark Church <laughs> to come and speak. And I'm beginning to feel a theme here in uh, this area. Is uh, What in the world is popping? What is firing? Where is the Holy Spirit show it, showing up? And so this morning, I was in a congregation of people who are a lot older than you, and uh, yet they're thinking of many of the same kinds of questions you're thinking about. What does it mean to be a church in the 21st century? And how can we be the most faithful, vibrant, sacred community that we can be doing justice and love of God in the world? Those questions are questions that are demanding from all of us who are people of faith. Christians, certainly, but also Jews and Muslims and Buddhists, people from a lot of different religious traditions in the United States, to rethink um, who we have been, what our traditions are about, how we've understood our sacred texts, how the word of God has come to us, and the practices of our lives. In other words, we were not born, anybody here in this room, whether you're on the younger end of the room or the older end of the room, um, none of us were born in a time when the questions were already answered and when the culture was relatively stable so that we could simply pass on what we knew to the next generation. Everybody here 
has been born in a time of intense, intense social change. And this means change about faith. Up on the screen, of course, I have a picture of, of change. That something uh, new is coming to birth among us. In order to know what the new thing is, sometimes it helps a little bit to understand the old thing. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is to share a little bit about my journey and some moments of change and invite you by sharing my journey into thinking about your own journey. And we will here build together um, a room expectant of change. This is the church where I was baptized. This is St. John's United Methodist Church in the city of Baltimore, Maryland. I was baptized in April of 1959. Yes, I really am that old. Uh, just three months after I was born. This beautiful church was four blocks away from the florist shop that my family owned from 1886 onward. My grandparents lived in this neighborhood, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. My great-grandparents helped to found this church. Their pictures hang in the Bible study room in the basement of this building. I went to Girl Scouts there, got all my merit badges uh, in the troop that met in that basement. And uh, right around the corner is the elementary school where I learned to read, where my father learned to read, and where my grandfather had laid the cornerstone. My great-grandfather was the captain of the volunteer fire department. I talk about that world sometimes, and I remember sharing it with uh, my editor who lives here in the Bay Area. He works for Harper One. He was born in 1969, just 10 years uh, after me, so I've always felt like, hey, we're kind of the same age. And uh, Roger was born in Hollywood, California. And one time I was waxing about this church, St. John's United Methodist, that baptized me and taught me all of my first lessons of faith. And as I told him all those stories about that neighborhood and the place where my family was so deeply connected, he said, oh, I love hearing about your childhood. And I said, well, thank you, Roger. That's really nice. He said, yeah, it's kind of like reading books about medieval history. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and it was Roger, in a sense, who was the one who re made me realize that this world is a million miles away. And just in my lifetime, which I don't feel is all that long, it has drifted into the past. Well, the next church I joined was in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, we moved there when I was uh, 13 years old, and my parents went to the Methodist church. And I got to tell you, this is in the early 1970s, and uh, the Methodist church that they joined was nothing like the Methodist church we had at home. As a matter of fact, it might count as the most boring Methodist church in the entire history of Methodism. And that's actually saying quite a lot. <laughs> I met the bishop of this, uh, this region a few years uh, later, a few years ago when I was on the road, and we were preaching at an event together. And she asked me where I grew up, and I told her the church, and she said, oh, and you're still a Christian? And I went, oh, my gosh, what a terrible thing to say. She said, that's a troubled church. And I said, yes, it is. And so I didn't want to go there. And instead, at 15 years old, I ventured out on my own 
um, egged on by some of my friends in high school to find my own, my own spiritual path, to find a church to go to. And at first, I wandered across the street and went to a Mormon stake Bible study. That was very exciting. They had dances, which was kind of cool. Methodists didn't have dances in their churches. Um, And I read the Book of Mormon with a bunch of friends, but it just didn't really strike me as something that I could go along with. Um, I went to Catholic Mass. Uh, Back in those days, there was a Catholic Charismatic Mass at a place called the Franciscan Renewal Center, and we used to dance around and, and do the Eucharist together, and it was very fun. But this is where I landed, Scottsdale Bible Church. When I started going to this particular church, there were 300 members, and it had only uh, been started about 10 years earlier by a young and entrepreneurial pastor. As a matter of fact, that's not even its building. That's the synagogue. Did you know that? (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, The church that I went to as a teenager, yes, met in a synagogue. And uh, we took it over on Sunday, and it was at Scottsdale Bible uh, that I had a born-again experience, which was very funny because I was a Methodist. Methodists are pretty good about born-again stuff. John Wesley once famously said in the 1730s that his heart had been strangely warmed. And so I just sort of thought that that was Methodism. And so one day at Scottsdale Bible Church, which is a sort of just a 1970s kind of very excited uh, evangelical-type church, um, that we had communion. And I always loved communion in Methodist Church. And they passed little crackers and grape juice by, and I felt my heart being strangely warmed, just like John Wesley said. And I, I, I thought, this is wonderful. I really feel God here. And later on, I was talking to a friend in, my ch- in the church, in the youth group, and he said, Diana, I need to ask you a serious question. Have you ever been born again? And I said, I think I was during communion last week. And so I am a kind of a weird evangelical journey where I wasn't born again in a Billy Graham rally, but I was born again eating uh, crackers and drinking Welch's grape juice during Holy Communion, which is kind of a different sort of story. Um, Scottsdale Bible Church is now one of the largest churches in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. It has about 30,000 members And it has a huge, huge campus. And let's just say they've never invited me to preach because they don't really like women preaching. But nevertheless, this church was a church that shaped me. We talked a lot about the rapture, and we talked a lot about the Bible, and we read the Bible very literally. Well, this is my third church that influenced me. This is All Saints by the Sea Episcopal Church in Santa Barbara, California. I went to Westmont College, Evangelical College, not so far away from here, from this church where a number of my fellow students um, had gone off to college. And when when I was in Westmont, I had a class called Reformation Theology. And I was completely taken by the writing of John Calvin and Martin Luther and the Anglican reformers, these people who wrote about faith with such vitality and enthusiasm uh, 500 years ago, dealing with complex and important theological questions. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. And while I was sitting there reading those books, I was 19 years old, 20 years old, and it occurred to me that if Martin Luther walked in to Scottsdale Bible Church, that he wouldn't know what to do. That somehow the form of Christianity that we had at Scottsdale Bible 
that we were so sure was deeply Protestant, deeply in line with the Bible, was not really all that much in line with the theology that I was reading from Martin Luther. And so on my own, I started going out and sort of testing out other churches. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to give those brand name churches a try again, because I had been in a lot of not brand name churches for many years. And so I tried a Methodist church, went back to my childhood church. I tried a Presbyterian church. I tried a congregational church. I tried a Lutheran church. But none of them sort of made my heart sing. And then I walked into this church. It's all wood inside. And it sits right a block and a half off the ocean. And the wood has absorbed all of those sort of scents of the sea. And it's also absorbed, I think, over the hundred years this building has been built, the candlelight and the smell of incense that's been inhabited in this building for so long, over generations. And I thought, oh my gosh, it was like walking into a mystery. I went back up the hill to Westmont and I told my friends that I really wanted to go there. And so one summer, or one Sunday in September in 1980, we all piled into a Volkswagen minibus and drove down the hill, about 25 of us, to this church. We were at the 8.30 service. Now, you can imagine this, 25 evangelical kids, mostly Southern Baptists and non-denominational kids, piling out of a minibus at a 100-year-old Episcopal church at 8.30 in the morning. We didn't know the rules of church in this place, And we all came in and sat in the front row with Bibles. Now, you didn't laugh, but nobody probably has ever carried a Bible into an Episcopal church since about maybe 1682. So so here we were, this young group of evangelicals sitting in the front row. And what we didn't know, they had a brand new pastor. He was from Wales, had an extraordinarily beautiful accent. The music started up. And the hymn was a hymn that um, I have a hard time singing now uh, called Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise in Light, which is a national hymn of Wales. And so this new priest was coming in singing this hymn at the top of his lungs and leading the procession with all these people in their robes and their the candles and the crosses and the, carrying the Bible. And he walks in the church. He comes down the aisle stops when he sees us and he looks and says, who the heck are you and why are you sitting in the front rows? (laughs) Because nobody had sat in those pews for so long. And we said, well, we're from Westmont. And he said, I could have guessed. (laughs) And that began my journey in the Episcopal Church. And so there you have it. A lifetime born into a moderate Methodist church growing up in the 1960s in a very family-oriented place in a big East Coast city. An incredibly uh, powerfully, spiritually alive, fundamentalist-slash-evangelical church caught up in the revivals of the 1970s. And then finally, a measured high church Episcopal church with a rector that preached with an Anglican lilt straight out of an episode of Downton Abbey. It sounds like change, a lot of change, and that I know change. 
But what was interesting is, despite the fact that all these three churches have different names, Methodist, Moderate, Theology, Fundamentalist, Evangelical, It's Scottsdale Bible, and Liberal Episcopalians, they actually all had something in common. And that was all three of these churches essentially had the same view of God. We don't talk about this very much in American religion. As a matter of fact, in American religion, we like to talk about the difference between liberals and evangelicals. We like to talk about the need for moderate religious traditions. We like to talk about the need for something that maybe blends the two. We like labels. But truth be told, in all three of those churches, I learned about a God that looked a lot like this. Uh, A God who was in heaven, in the clouds, this God and the world in which I inhabited as a child, if, you, if the lights were off, you could see this a little bit better, but um, this God has white skin, so this is a racialized God. It is also a deeply gendered God. It's a him, and you can see it's an elderly God with a white um, beard and white hair, halo representing holiness, um, and this God is above us in a high place, often a distance, looking down. And so this God is the God that all three of those churches taught about in different kinds of ways. The problem here with this, with this God is that this God was beginning to not make a whole lot of sense in late 20th century culture. This was a God who felt far off, that, didn't, that seemed like maybe God had contributed to more of our problems than to the solutions. And I began to wonder myself, why was it that this God um, is the kind of God that we still sung hymns about in liberal, conservative, moderate, didn't matter what the label kind of church was, but that this was that God? Was this really the God of the Bible? Through a whole lot of my own journey, I began to understand that you can read the Bible to come up with this picture of God. This is actually a painting from 1515, so this is a very old painting. It's an Italian artist. It's one of the rare uh, paintings we have of God the Father uh, from uh, a medieval art. And uh, it's a very girthsome painting, as a matter of fact. But... In order to get to this picture of God, you also have to have something else. You have to have a particular understanding of the universe. Our ancestors arrived at this picture of God through this vision of the universe. And that is ancient ancestors, the people who are the uh, citizens now of what we call the Western Christian tradition, our ancestors believed in this thing called the three-tiered universe, where there was heaven above us, earth was here, and hell was beneath our feet. We talk about that today. It was in some of the songs. And, um, you know, most of us today hold on to this idea largely as a metaphor or maybe a spiritual reality. But we don't really think of this as science or the actual structure of the universe. If we want to talk about science and the structure of the universe, we think about Einstein, we think about quantum physics, we think about all kinds of amazing pictures. My daughter just graduated from high school, and she would bring home her high school science textbooks, and there were remarkable pictures drawn of the universe. Uh, And none of them look like this. 
they were different kinds of pictures. And so what we have is we have a sort of a worldview associated with Christianity and, and theology and our vision of God that's tied to a structure of the world, structure of the universe that's here that we now interpret as a metaphor. But when that painting was painted, that artist thought this was science. This was the actual structure of the universe that our ancestors believed in, a vertically structured three-tiered universe with this God at the top. Now, you can see what the simple issue is for church, and this is where I want to take us and give us a little chance to talk about this. If you think that this is the actual physical structure of the whole of the universe, you see what the problem is is that God lives way up there, we're here, and down there is a place we don't want to talk about. And so the whole of faith, the whole of religion, becomes about how do we get from here to there and not go there. And so church, particularly in Western culture, developed to be like this. An elevator. If you think about the language of theology and our understanding of God, God was up in heaven, and God puts stuff in an elevator and sends it down to us. When the elevator gets here to earth, the doors open, and we have standing at the door of the elevator a special elevator operator who has been trained at Holy Elevator Operator School just to be able to pull the stuff out of the elevator and turn around and offer it to the people of God and say, this is for you. Do these things and you shall live. Now, what's interesting, of course, about Western Christianity is that we got a whole bunch of different elevators. There's the Catholic elevator where God sits in heaven and puts in seven sacraments and sends those down here. And then there's priests that handle those sacraments. And the priest says to people, take, eat, do this in remembrance of of me, and you're going to be saved. Be baptized, and you'll be saved. Confess your sins, you'll be saved. Um, There's the Episcopal elevator where we got uh, two sacraments, maybe three if you stretch it. Um, And uh, also we got a lot of really, really nice pearls. For some reason, God sent down pearl necklaces to Episcopal women so that we could just do this all the time and clutch our, clutch our pearls. Uh, Lutherans got beer in their elevators. Baptists got the Bible and a couple of ordinances. Pentecostals, God put a fire in the elevator, sent it down, and when the doors open, boom, the fire just bursts out. Um, and so all these things that God sent down in the elevator were different depending upon what the elevator was, but that was all the same structure. It was all about God sending stuff to us and us standing there waiting for the elevator doors to open and somebody to help us to navigate whatever came out of the elevator. And if we navigated those things correctly, then, oh my gosh, if we received them in faith or we did them in love or we listened to the rules or we uh, were faithful to the word, whatever it was, if we did those things, then God would allow us when we die to get back in the elevator And an elevator operator would reach inside and press the up button and then jump out and send us up. In the last 20 years of my life, I've spent with liberal Protestants. 
And uh, liberal Protestants about 100 years ago did something interesting. And that is we decided we didn't want the down button. So we put tape over the down button. And so the down button wasn't really a possibility for anybody, but we only put tape over it because we needed that down button in case of emergency, like Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was an emergency, and so when he died, he went in the elevator and he went down. Uh, But really, he's about the only one in the last hundred years that any liberal Protestant has sent on the down button. Everybody else has, has gone up. But you know what? After spending most of my life on this elevator, I didn't want to be there anymore. I just didn't think that this was really the structure. I, 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 as I said, I'm an Episcopalian. We actually physically embody this in our churches. We kneel for prayer. We stand for songs. We go up and down during our Eucharist. Hey, you all, we're moving your hands. The only time Episcopalians ever do that, anything with their hands is this. Uh, we cross ourselves. Uh, so you were very challenging to me. <laughs> But I began to realize that it wasn't really that I was upset about being an evangelical or I was upset about a boring Methodist church. It just didn't make any sense to me anymore that church was an elevator for a structure of the universe that I didn't believe in about a picture of a God who I thought had caused more trouble and more exclusion than good. And so what to do? Well, this is what I did, and uh, I know you're in a a place where you want to think about new things. I started spending time outside and listening to um, the voice of God differently. This is a place called Ring Lake Ranch outside of Dubois, Wyoming, which is a beautiful place. And I spent a couple weeks there one summer, and I was getting ready to write the book Grounded, and so I was thinking about the new book. What does it mean to be grounded in faith? I knew I wanted to write a book about the ground of our being. And where was God? How did God ground us? So I knew that, and I went up to the mountains, and I was working on this book, and I came back down to my home in Alexandria, Virginia, and I was trying very hard to write, and I couldn't write, and I went to see my spiritual director, and she said, "Um, well, where are you trying to write? And I said, oh gosh, well, I I haven't really found a place yet. And she said, go to some place that you think is very holy, and sort of sit there and listen and wait for the wait for to hear God, and um, start just writing, just write, take a notebook. And so I went here. This is the Washington National Cathedral, a place where I have felt great power and presence of God over my life. This is the Chapel of the Holy Spirit, and I was sitting in one of these little pews out here right in front of this great picture of Jesus, and there's angels on either side. And um, I was praying, God, help me to understand where you are right now. Where are you in the world right now? And I, I didn't feel anything, and I didn't really hear anything. I got down on my knees, please, 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 I, I'm desperate, God. I need to write this book. Help. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I looked up into the face of that Jesus, and he spoke to me. And he said, get me out of here. (laughs) And I said, what, Lord? And he said, get me out of here. Are you kidding me? Get me out of here.
Maybe Jesus was tired of being locked in a building too. Up like that, above the people, only seeing the tops of Episcopalians' foreheads as they knelt in front of him in desperate supplication. Where was God? And so I started walking along a river and exploring that. I'm going to skip a couple slides here. There are a lot of great stories along the way of places I found God. I do want to stop and show you this one picture. This was very meaningful to me on my journey. And so just because I think it preaches so beautifully and helps to see God in a different way. Um, In uh, one fall, I was at the American Academy of Religion Conference, which is pretty much the last place anybody would expect to find God. Um, But... uh, there was a huge event where the American Academy of Religion was honoring Wendell Berry, who is just an amazing contemporary poet. And he has written so well about the ground and nature and God. And he read this poem out loud, and all of a sudden, my heart was strangely warmed. And so I share it with you. Oh, saints... If I am even eligible for this prayer, though less than worthy of this dear desire, and if your prayers have influence in heaven, let me put my place there be lower than your own. I know how you have longed here where you lived as exiles for the presence of the essential being and maker and knower of all things. But because of my unruliness, or some erring virtue in me never rightly schooled, some error clear and dear, my life has not taught me to desire flight. Dismattered, pure, and free, I long instead for the heaven of creatures, of seasons, of day and night. Heaven enough for me would be this world as I know it, but redeemed of our abuse of it and one another. It would be the heaven of knowing again. There is no marrying in heaven, and I submit, even so, I would like to know my wife again, both of us young again, and I always remembering how I loved her when she was old. I would like to know my children again, all of my family, all of my dear ones, to see, to hear, to hold more carefully than ever before, to study them lingeringly as one studies old verses, committing them to heart forever. I would like to know my friends, my old companions, men and women, horses and dogs, in all the ages of our lives here in this place where I have watched over all my life in its moods and seasons, never enough. I will be leaving how many beauties overlooked. A painful heaven this would be, for I would know by it how far I had fallen short. I have not paid enough attention. I have not been grateful enough. And yet this pain would be the measure of my love. And in eternities once and now, pain would surely place me in the heaven of my earthly love.
After he read this poem, he started to cry and said to the 5,000 religion scholars who were crying along with him, I'm never going to read that one in public again. But the words thundered off the stage towards me, and I realized how much I had overlooked and how little I was paying attention to the God who is right here in this world with us now. And that the whole theological universe that I had ever learned turned inside out and upside down. And I realized that it was not about life after death and it was not about being with God in the clouds after I died, but it was about my dog and my daughter and my garden and my backyard and my friends and the doing justice and walking the streets with Black Lives Matter. And it was about feeding hungry people and it was about making sure that nobody ever went to bed hungry at night. It was about all those things. God is here with us. With us. And suddenly I understood that all of the different religious organizations that I was working with, that they were failing, not because they were stupid or boring or because they were old, but because they were preaching a theology of escape, of evacuation from this earth, and that they were not paying enough attention to now hear this. As I ruminated on all of this, and this is just what I'd like to leave you with and we can talk about for about five or seven minutes. I realized that in my entire life as a churchgoer, which was all the way since April of 1959 in the city of Baltimore, Maryland, I had heard a thousand sermons, maybe more, on the resurrection and the ascension. And that's really good, and it's really important, and we have to know that part of Jesus' story. But as a friend of mine who has a rabbi pointed out one time to me, he said, I don't understand Christianity. I said, why not? He said, why do you only talk about the end and not the beginning? And I was sort of puzzled by that, but I realized when I, when I got to that point of all of the sermons that had thundered at me about the resurrection, that I had maybe only heard a dozen sermons over my entire life about the incarnation of Jesus and almost all of those sermons about the incarnation, God with us, God embodied, God here, always happened on Christmas. I had even heard Christmas sermons where the pastor got up and said, Jesus was born into the world so that he might be killed and rise from the dead for your sins. I've heard Christmas sermons turned into Easter sermons. But what if we stopped and really understood the beginning? That the great longing in the Hebrew Bible is not for a God who rises from the dead. It's for a God who will live with the people walking around here on earth with us. Emmanuel. That's the promise that the whole of the Hebrew scriptures are pointing towards. This three words right here. That is the beginning 
of Christian theology. That's the point. That's the point. There are theologians around the world who are beginning to take this more seriously than we've ever taken it before. Radical incarnation. Radical imminence. God with us. Radical withness. What does it mean to do that? So I'm not on a path any longer of uh, fighting with what I knew. But instead, for the last three or four or five years, as I have been trying to write new books and see the world differently, I have been on a path of opening my eyes to all these different angles and dimensions of Christian theology and life and community that's about that. What does it mean for God to be with us? And what difference does that make uh, in the world and in the church? And I think it actually makes all the difference. What does it mean to be a community of radical incarnation? It gives us something to build rather than run away from. And boy, that's exciting. There's too many churches I know are running away from the past. And it's time to embrace the now.